Lord, we thank you so much for the revelation of your word. And Lord, every part of your word, Lord, is relevant and applicable to us today. And Lord, you want us to fight through the Old Testament and Lord, to see how you are on display, not only in the affairs of man, but Lord, also by means of how what happens in the Old Testament ultimately points to your son, Jesus Christ. Allow us, Lord, to be humble before your word. Allow me, as your messenger, Lord, to simply speak your truth, to be a mouthpiece for your text. And we ask, Lord, that we will be strengthened, encouraged, convicted, and molded to be like your son, Jesus Christ, today. Lord, for your glory, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we jump back into 2 Samuel, I think it's just worth us taking a moment to get the bigger picture of what's going on. Uh, 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel really are one big, long story. And when we looked at 1 Samuel, the, the real emphasis, the melodic line there was who was going to be the king. We know that it wasn't going to be Samuel the prophet. God raised up Samuel the prophet out of obscurity in a time of terrible situation in Israel to ultimately be a leader in Israel where the word of God now was retaught and, and, and was present among the people. But he was kind of the one that, that, that God used to bring about the establishing of his actual king. But in the storyline, the people wanted a king like the other nations had. And so God re relented and allowed them to bring Saul as their king. But he was not God's chosen king. He was not the, the, the one after God's own heart, the one that came out of God's heart to be the king. And so ultimately we see in the story David being raised up and this conflict that took place between David and Saul. And Saul eventually um, dies and David eventually becomes king. And that's what we have at the beginning of chapter uh, of 2 Samuel is, is David ascending to the throne and David establishing this kingdom in Israel. There were this one people in one place under one God. And last time we were together, we were looking at chapter 9 of this great book. And if you remember the story in chapter 9, it was a story about one of Saul's descendants, one of his only living descendants by the name of Mephibosheth. And he was a cripple, lame. In fact, in many contexts, in many societies, if you were the residual family member of a previous king, you would be sought after and you would be killed off. And we find that David doesn't do that. In fact, what David does is he extends Hesed, covenant love, kindness to Mephibosheth, so much so that he brings him into his family and allows him to sit at his table. In other words, he brings him in as if he were one of his very own. And there's an incredible picture there about how God takes us from obscurity, takes us when we are lame and crippled and we're worthless, and he raises us up to be with him, to sit with him in heavenly places. And we celebrate the Lord's table just like Mephibosheth sat around the table with David, the king. Now remember, David, when he is at his best, is a wonderful picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. So David isn't always that. 
But at his best, he is giving us pictures and he's giving us shadows, so to speak. He's pointing us ultimately to that one who would be that king who was spotless, who was that that perfect lamb, who was the savior, who is the son of God, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But today as we come to chapter 10, uh, we want to consider what's going on and I want to kind of bring things uh, or kind of lay the table so that we can see what actually happens in chapter 10, 11, and 12 together because this is one unit of thought. I just want you to think about that. How many of you have been to Yosemite before? How many of you have climbed El Capitan? You ever climbed El Capitan? Hopefully not on the front side, on the back side, right? But, you know, just imagine if El Capitan was just El Capitan and there was no Yosemite. It just, it wouldn't have the same oomph, would it? I mean, El Capitan is this beautiful, massive rock rising out of Yosemite that draws people from all over the world, not just because it's El Capitan, but because of its setting in the context of the beauty of Yosemite. And just think about the Golden Gate Bridge, an incredible marvel of engineering. But that Golden Gate Bridge means nothing if it's like out in the middle of the desert in Arizona. It would just be a bridge. And probably people, they might go and visit it and say, well, this is really dumb, right? Why is this out here? You know, I think London Bridge is in Arizona somewhere, isn't it? All right, but the Golden Gate Bridge is not out there. The Golden Gate Bridge has a purpose. And what makes it beautiful, why people come from all over the world to the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the reasons is they want to walk across that bridge. And the reason they're walking across that bridge is because of its setting in the context of the Bay Area. I think we live in one of the most beautiful places in all the world. And the Bay Bridge sits right in the heart of the beautiful terrain of the Bay Area. By itself, it's just a bridge. But in its setting, it it, it sings. It's it's majestic. It's, it's, It's beautiful. Now, I say all that to say this, that chapter 11 12 or 10, 11, and 12 all work together. Because what happens is a lot of times people who are studying the Word of God or people who are preaching maybe from 2 Samuel will land on chapter 11. Why? Because it's one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament. It's that passage that's that story of David and his sinful adultery with Bathsheba. And it's, it's an incredible story of, of how sin grips someone and all the things that someone does in the process of trying to pursue that sin and cover that sin. So in that sense, it's a, it's a, a magnificent story for us to think through and to ask ourselves, how would we find ourselves falling into that same mold and to be careful that we don't? But that chapter 11 is placed in a context. And that context is laced with a theme. And that theme that surrounds that context, which makes David sin with Bathsheba and all he does there just more shocking, is this context of kindness. It's the context of Hesed love, this loving kindness. It comes out in our text with the word loyalty. It's the same word, Hesed. And so what we find as we we look into this passage, in particular chapter 10, we see David at his best ruling, reigning, and responding to those who despise him and his word. We find then 
um, these Ammonites who rise up against David, but soon find out that he is too much to be trifled with. Of course, chapter 11 um, and most of 12, we see David continuing his military exploits, but from Jerusalem, and he is soft on maintaining the, the holiness code, and that becomes very evident when Uriah comes back, if you remember, Bathsheba's husband, and he will not go to her because he is, he is tied in to the holiness code of men who are going off to battle. It's just something you don't do. Okay? And David, however, is soft on that, and he allows himself to, to um, commit that sin with Bathsheba. And of course, at the end of chapter 12, the story that begins here in chapter 10 is finished out. Okay, and we're going to see that a little bit later today. So we want to see, for our purposes today, the, the, the setting um, in, its, in, its, um, in its greater picture so that when we get to chapter 11, we'll be able to see um, the importance and the reason um, as to why it's there. Now, notice that chapter 10 begins with David sending a message to Hanan, the son of Nahash, king of the Ammonites. At the end of chapter 12... It ends with Joab sending David a message that the city of the Ammonites, Rabbah, was ready to be defeated. So you have this, this kind of theme or motif of message. In fact, that kind of goes through all of these chapters. So what is the point of this section of 2 Samuel? Now, my, my contention is the point of this, second, this, this section of 2 Samuel is this. It's a comparison of two kings. Not the king of the Ammonites and David, but King Saul and David. I want you to think about this. Saul, the people's king, failed because when confronted with his sin, he refused to repent. David, however, as sinful as he was, when he is confronted with his sin, what does he do? He repents. See, David is not a perfect king, There'll only be one perfect king. But he is a man after God's own heart. In other words, he is one who, by virtue of God's will and choice, is reflecting the kind of character in a man who finds himself and who is given into sin by when he's confronted with that sin, he seeks forgiveness and he repents. Just listen to the comparison from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 19. Here's Saul. This is uh, um, the prophet speaking to Saul. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then listen to how Nathan speaks to David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? I mean, he's saying the same thing, just a little different way. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. See, even David, God's chosen earthly king, had feet of clay. But their feet, that having drifted away into sin, are quick to be back on the path of righteousness through the forgiveness of sin. Now, chapters 10 through 12 um, in my opinion, are an exposition of a verse of Scripture in 
Romans, Romans chapter 2. Turn to Romans chapter 2. We want to read verses 4 and 5. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. Kindness. said. His love, his expression of covenant love is given to lead us to repentance. In fact, Paul reiterates that in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this, this loving kindness of God, it appeared and it saved us. But we have to ask ourselves the question now, which verse 5 of Romans 2 answers The question is this, what is it that gets in the way of God's kindness leading to repentance? Read verse five. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So how is it that I can resist God's kindness, it happens when my heart is hard and impenitent. And if I'm the person who is the recipient, or at least the the potential recipient of the kindness of God, but I stand firm and I defy it, and I reject it, and I despise it, I am storing up wrath upon myself. So a quick flyover of chapter 10, 11, and 12. When God's kindness is rejected, it leads to repentance. All the verses are up here. When God's kindness is rejected, it leads to destruction. Okay. Secondly, when God's kindness is neglected, and that would be David neglecting his responsibility, neglecting his carefulness as it relates to the whole Bathsheba incident, it leads to devastation. It's just all, it's all a mess for David after that. And when God's kindness is accepted, it leads to repentance. Because David ultimately does repent. Now let's turn to chapter 10 and ask ourselves then the question, what happens when kindness is rejected? Maybe we want to say it this way. What we find there is the downward spiral of those who despise the kindness of God. What we're going to see as we go through chapter 10 is just this beginning spiral or beginning response to the, the kindness extended by David by the Ammonites in particular, and it just spirals down and spirals down and spirals down. When kindness is extended, it is despised. Now, as we consider our text, there are two strands of thought that we can kind of take notice of. One's positive and one's negative. The positive thread will start with loyalty, will include courage, will end up with peace. 
That's the positive. Loyalty, courage, peace. The negative begins with shame, stench, and ultimately submission. And so this morning, let's jump in with this backdrop and this understanding here to see this this spiral that takes place, this downward spiral of those who despise the kindness of God. And we want to talk, first of all, now about a royal shame. And see, there's a context to the story. Verse one. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. It is said that a kingdom is most vulnerable when its king dies. Other nations then are looking and saying, oh, what are we going to do here? And maybe they can find some way in or some alliance, and they can, un- they can somehow undermine the structure and the leadership and the integrity of the na- another nation, and so they're going to come and they're going to attack. So this is a very, very sensitive, very difficult time, and what you need during that time is you need allies. You need people who are going to be supportive of you. You need people to come alongside you so those things don't actually take place. But you re- might remember this king of the Ammonites, and um, he was around, his name is Nahash, he was around uh, when Saul was just made king. In fact, Nahash was besieging a place called Jabesh-Gilead, and he was kind of a cruel tyrant. He did nasty things. In that siege, if you remember the story, he said, listen, I'll, I'll allow peace to take place uh, for this city. I'll, I'll, I'll let you live, but in order to do that, I have to gouge out every right eye of every man who's in the city. Saul hears of that. He has just been anointed king, and he rushes with an army to Jabesh Gilead, and he drives the Ammonites away. He just routes them. They're not all killed off. Many of them scatter off into the mountains, into the fields. They get away. Ultimately, evidently, they regroup, and Nahash is still around. But that's the guy we're talking about. But somehow in the story, um, David somehow had been dealt kindly by Nahash, and so he's paying it back, so to speak, in this story. I'm not exactly sure how and when. We don't have it recorded in Scripture, but there's something there that David then feels like he needs to do this. And it may just be he wants to be a benevolent king in that area. Because what we find here, first of all, is a kindness that is extended. A kindness that is extended. Look at verse 2. And David said, I will deal loyally, there's that word, hesed, there's that kindness. I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So he says, I'll deal loyally, kindly. So understand, though, that when David is sending servants, he, those servants are like ambassadors for him. So when they speak, they're speaking for him. So it's right to say, David is saying this. This is the message that he wants to convey to you. This comes from him. And just remember, David had extended the same loyalty or kindness to Mephibosheth also. In chapter then 9, you have this kindness received. In chapter 10, you have this kindness received rejected, this kindness despised. And if you were just wondering about David's motive, the writer lets us know, David desires to console him concerning his father. He has no intentions of doing anything else. But then kindness is rejected. Look at verse three and following. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, 
Do you think that David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David, his servants, sent his servants to you to, to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beards um, each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now, friends, that's pretty radical stuff. Someone comes to you with a, a kind, encouraging word, and you slap them silly. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. But these men are, are consumed with suspicion. They have, they have doubt as to what David's actual intentions are, that they don't trust David. And so they come up with this plan. This plan, however, by means of rejection, is also going to be an insult. Notice the three things they do. They, they shave the beard in half. And the idea there is probably it was a vertical shave. So one half of the, of the face was, 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 was shaved down, the other half um, was still long. So obviously it looked weird. And, and in that particular culture, that was a huge offense to those people. It would, uh, um, well, let's just say, it would be like, it would be, be like getting, getting flogged. That's how serious they would actually take it. This is how offensive it was to those people. Then it says, he cut off their garments up to the waist. I don't have to paint too much of a picture for you for that, right? Now, just think about this. They're going, representing David, and they are insulted by having their beard cut and having their garments cut. Now, usually people who represent a king have a uniform. I mean, they're they're going, representing that king. This would be very much like someone who is... Uh, from our military going to another dignitary of another country and them ripping off their uniform and burning the stars and stripes and sending them on their way naked. That's the kind of depth of insult that this was. You insult the messenger, you ultimately insult who? The king. Now, friends, that's, that's what ultimately is happening here. So these, these responses by the princes, and of course, and Hanan is now responsible because he took their advice, he took their counsel, this is what he did, and they're, they're showing their, uh, their rejection by their despising of the king's message of kindness as well as the messengers of that kindness. Now, notice the kindness that is demonstrated. Still in this story, David extended kindness to the Ammonites, but now we're going to find that David is far more concerned with his messengers than he is with the Ammonites to begin with. Here's David as a wonderful kingly shepherd. Verse 5, and when it was told David, he sent to meet them. So here are these guys, totally ashamed, totally humiliated, totally mocked and ridiculed, and he sends sends to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, remain in Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. I just, it just lets you know how serious the, this, this beard thing was. He wanted to protect them. He wanted to care for them. He wanted to have their dignity restored. He wanted to have their, um, their, their honor preserved. There'd be no more humiliation This is how a righteous king treats his subjects. Now, friends, this is a story about David and his dealings with the Ammonites, but it's also a picture of how mankind interacts 
with the kindness of God. God comes to us when we're undeserving, enemies even, and he sends us messengers with a message from him about the good news of the gospel. It's a message of grace, it's a message of kindness and freedom that we can have in Christ. But so many times man chooses to reject this message, even turning on those who are the messengers of that good news of kindness. How do they despise God's kindness? These are just some things to think about. First of all, they attack the messengers by saying things like this. You just think that you're better than us, don't you? Get away from me with your self-righteous religious talk. Anyone said anything like that to you? Or how about this one? Why are you always condemning others, telling them that they're sinners and going to hell? That's just narrow-minded, and that's a hateful thing to say to people. They're attacking the messengers for bringing a message of kindness and good news. And in order for that good news to actually be good news, the bad news has to be shared. But behind the bad news is the good news of the gospel. Your condition needs to be understood so that you can understand the beauty of the good news. Secondly, they ridicule the messengers. They call them simpletons or people who are illogical, that just can't think. Many times that's how Christians are portrayed. You know, they just have to have a crutch to lean on. They don't have any strength in and of themselves, so this is what they have to do to get through life. Or thirdly, they despise the message of the gospel itself. They mock it, they shame it. To them, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. It's scandalous. Listen to the words of Christopher Hitchens, the well-known atheist. It isn't just that he believes that there is no God. He actually hates the idea and is offended at those who embrace the God of Christianity. Just listen to a couple of his quotes. I find something repulsive about the idea of vicarious redemption. In other words, Jesus Christ dying on the cross in our place. I would not throw my numberless sins onto a scapegoat and expect them to pass for me. The whole apparatus of absolution and forgiveness strikes me as positively immoral. I mean, he's just taking what God has done in his kindness for Christopher Hitchens, and he has just gone slap to God. Or how about this one? The idea of self-sacrifice can be noble, but no one may actually bear someone else's sins as though they were their own. The idea that Christ knew no sin and yet became sin on our behalf is a scandal. Those are hard words. Now friends, make no mistake. For those who think they are good people, the gospel, God's kindness is offensive because God does the work and we don't. People like to say, I did this. And so there's religions all around the world that are all about what you did. But in Christianity, it's not about what you did. It's all about what God did. It's like you being a little child who's totally helpless, covered in dirt, who's washed in a bathtub, 
and that you're just, you're just the recipient of God's kindness and care. Certainly you have to respond in the whole process of the gospel transaction. But it's God that seeks you out. It's God who is doing the saving. Nothing that you do merits anything when you come to the cross. You, you come naked. and You just grab on and hold on to his grace. For others, however, the gospel is offensive because Jesus had to die in our place, which means if that is true, then that means that I'm guilty and that I'm a sinner. And I don't like you calling me that. You're not going to call me that. How dare you call me a sinner? How dare you condemn me? Well, the Bible's very clear. I don't have to condemn you. You're condemned already. I'm just telling you the reality of your condition. Of course, how I tell you is important too. But hear this. The despising of God's kindness is a shameful thing. Ultimately, it mocks God's character. It ridicules his grace. It perverts his intentions. And when it comes down to it, it is a rebellion in the heart of man. My friends, that is the reality when someone despises the kindness of God. But that that, that despising of God now bears fruit. Notice that David has done nothing yet to Hanan. He is a patient king. He is slow to anger. He's been focusing on his own people. He, he may have a plan in mind, but we haven't seen it unfold yet. But notice how the Ammonites respond. We're looking now at what I'm calling a royal stench. Notice what the Ammonites saw. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. It's interesting. It wasn't that they heard that they had become a stench to David. The idea of the word saw means they understood the implications of their shameful actions. Resulted in them being a stench to David and to any Israelite to treat those emissaries that way. Now, I don't know if you know what a stench is, but I want to just try and communicate that a little bit here. Has anyone ever had the fruit durian before? I have. I had a, an associate pastor who was strange in this department, and he showed up one day unannounced with a durian. It's about, it's like cantaloupe, and it's all kind of prickly. He said, I says, I bought it. He says, I always wanted to try this out. And he says, I, I put it in the freezer because they say if you do that, you know, it's like eating ice cream and that kind of stuff. And you want to try it with me? And I'm like, no. But he opens it up and it was just like, oh. And it, really, it, it is supposed to be the, the world's smelliest fruit. And trust me, it is the world's smelliest fruit. And I tasted it. And it doesn't taste any better than it smells. I promise you, it is nasty. And my office, yeah, he had to bring it into my office, right? My office and my tongue worked for like a week to get rid of the flavor and the smell. It was horrible. It was a stench. I went, get it out of here. I don't want any more of that. Take it off the property, you know? Take it to Ohio or some other place. Not here. It, I mean, it was bad. There was another time 
and I was doing ministry in Russia. We took a team, and uh, we were out in a place called Ishimbai um, in Bashkortostan. And um, our, our pastor host uh, was taking us to a couple of different churches, and we were traveling. There was about eight of us in this van. And um, I noticed something when we were loading up the van, and that is that he... He, he had this like water in the, in the back of the van in like a, like a two liter bottle. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Why would you have water in a, in a Coke bottle and stuff like that? Okay, no big deal. So we're doing stuff and we're bouncing around. We're driving, the roads are bumpy. And then all of a sudden we're, we're, we're finished with ministry and we're kind of, we're heading home about an hour left to drive. And we find out that what was in that bottle was not water, but diesel fuel. And it had leaked out and we had our bags, and someone had just bought some new tennis shoes, and this diesel fuel started to go spread all across the bottom of this van, and it just got on our shoes and everything. And I tell you, we had clothes that we ultimately just had to throw away because we washed them, and we washed them, and we washed them, and we washed them. And nothing could get the smell out. It was a stench. It was horrible. So the moral of the story is don't ever put diesel fuel in a two liter Coke bottle, okay? It's not what it's made for. But it was a stench. You just couldn't get rid of it. I just want to paint the picture here because this, this word stench is a powerful word. Literally it means to incur the wrath of The Ammonites understood that what they had done to those servants of David who had gone with a message of kindness, that they're treating them in that shameful way, now was a stench. David is up. Now they saw that. They understood the implications of it. Now one of the questions is, was that their goal? Or was that just the result of their actions? But they recognized the seriousness of what they had done. But they, hear this, that didn't change their response to David. This was a perfect opportunity to say, ah, you know, that was really foolish of us. That was wrong of us. We shouldn't have treated your servants like that. Please forgive us. What can we do to make this right? That wasn't what they did at all. They were a stench. And as a stench, what do they do? They raise up an army. In fact, they hire the Syrians now to come to join them. And now there's, there's, there's five armies gathered together, still in the Ammonite territory, but ready to do battle. That's their response. It's a response of hostility. It's a response by saying, we don't care. We're going to fight. So we see that there at the bottom of, of that verse, verse 6, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians, Bethrob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. Now notice the response of the Israelites. Of course, certainly David is in this, right? Verse 7, uh, here's what David heard and did. When David heard of it, the rousing of the army, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Now what did Joab see when he arrived then 
in the Ammonite territory. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. So you have this, this army that is the, the Ammonites that are, that are there um, in front of the city, in front of the gate, and you have the Syrians then, they're kind of across the way out in the country, and we find the Israelites in between. The mighty men gathered in between, and they have an army on both sides. What's going to happen here? Joab, skilled in battle, a skilled leader, comes up with a plan. When he saw the battle was set against them, both in the front and the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel, it says, and arrayed them, that means he lined them up against the Syrians, and the rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, um, in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. So basically, he divided his army into two, facing both of those armies. But notice now what Joab says. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. You see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, we have to unite together on two different fronts to fight this battle. And we're just going to go wherever the battle goes. We're going to come and support one another. This was unity. There was a plan of action here with two different leaders coming together in this incredible battle. But notice also what he says now specifically to his men and his leadership. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous, hear this now, for the people and for the cities of our God, speaking about the land that God had just allowed them to settle in. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Friends, this is good theology. And it's coming from the lips of of Joab. <laughs> huh? I mean, Joab is not known for his spiritual status. So this is the, the first, I want to say, mention that we have of Joab being strong in faith to God. Now, whether or not he was actually someone who believed those things, um, I would think that he would if he said that. He certainly is saying truth here. There's a sense in which now with all these armies around them, they must be of good courage. We, we must fight for the sake of the people and for the sake of what God has given us. But more than that, what they're doing with their courage is rooted in God himself, right? He says, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. We can have our plans and we can be courageous and we can fight, but he is ultimately the one that decides. And are we resigned to his will? We've got to hear this. Not every battle that Christians have fought in have they come through successfully, I want to say from a human perspective. Sometimes they're defeated. But some, sometimes that, that defeat is all part of God's plan. But when we say we're going to do our best to stand for God, to, to find our courage in him, because we have a lot at stake here. We have, we have people that we're caring for. We have a, a land that we care for because it's God's land. And we're going to fight, and we're going to fight, and we're going to fight. But ultimately, this is in God's hands. It's good theology. Take responsibility. Trust God. Take responsibility for what you know you should and trust God. 
Now, all that was the result of this stench. The wrath of David now coming out with these men. But actually, these men are going more for, uh, uh, in a defensive mode than they are going in an attack mode. They're going into the territory to make sure that these people don't come into the territory of Israel. Now, when we despise God's kindness, and it becomes ultimately a stench to God because it mocks him, it ridicules him, it spits upon him and his word and his people. In other words, when man's shameful response to the kindness of God is exposed for what it really is, and he is unwilling to turn from his sinful ways and repent, he is becoming a stench, a stench to God. He is, he is invoking the wrath of God on himself. That's what, remember, Romans 2 and verse 5 is saying. So he's showing utter hostility and contempt for God by drawing up in battle uh, these plans instead of failing, or sorry, instead of falling on his face and humbling himself before David here and, and really just trying to seek reconciliation. So knowing that you are a stench to God should drive you to repentance. But what stands in the way is your hard an impenitent heart. So we've, we've moved from a, this, this, this royal shame to this royal stench, but now we move into this third section, which I'm calling a royal shambles. Um, and we're not going to read everything here, but I just want you to notice there are three battles that are going to be mentioned. In this passage, there are two battles. And, and the key similarity through this battle is this. First battle, which would be verse 13. We'll start by reading there. So Joab and the people who are with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And there's this word, fled, 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 fled. When you come up against God's king, you're not going to come out victorious. You will flee in the presence of his chosen king. This was all a shambles. And it was a royal shambles because of all the kings that were involved here gathered together to fight against the Israelites. But they flee. One flees. The other one flees. They continue to flee. That was battle one. Battle two begins there um, in the middle there of verse 14. Then Joab returned from fighting and saw the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. Hey, let's go do this a second time. By the way, no blood has been spilled yet. There's just a lot of and fleeing. But again, they flee, but this time when they flee, the Israelites come on them and they defeat them. And they, um, verse, verse 19, and when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezar, the Syrian here, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them so the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Now turn to chapter 12 and verse 26. So this is the end of the story that happens after the whole incident with David and Bathsheba and all the things that, that flow out of that story. Now Joab fought against Rabbah. This is the city. This is the city that the gates 
um, where they're talking about the gates, where the army stood in front of the city. This is a city called Rabbah, okay, of the Ammonites, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took the crown of their king from his head. Whose king is this? It's the Ammonite king. What's his name? Hanum. Okay, this is who we're talking about. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and it was precious stone, uh, and it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. So not only did he take the king, he took the city, but keep reading, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns, and they did, all, uh, did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Defeat, destruction. Now what, what the princes feared, that David didn't have any intention of doing, ultimately becomes what David actually ends up doing, but not because of what he desired, but because of their defiance of the kindness of God. Friends, when man despises the kindness of God, he incurs the wrath of God upon himself. But if he is breathing, he still has hope. He can still repent. He can still bow the knee. Now, I know in our culture, in our society, people don't like hearing about the wrath of God. We see the wrath of David exercised here because of the stench of the people who dug their heels in. Listen to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 15 and following. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Judgment may have not come today, but judgment, friends, is coming. The wrath of God that man is, is calling out for himself, like Romans 2, verse 5 says, may not have taken place yet because God is, 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 is slow to anger. He's patient. But that wrath will be poured out. And that wrath, first of all, is poured out for those who are God's children on his son, Jesus Christ. All those offenses, all those things that you and I have done in our sin against God, that wrath that we deserved is poured out on Jesus Christ. But for those who do not bow the knee, they will one day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God's wrath will be satisfied. And friends, that's the reality of it. This, this downward spiral, kindness, response, shame. And then that shame, they understand, turns into stench. And then it just, it just ends up being a shambles of life. And then they're totally destruction 
They're totally destroyed and, 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 and defeated in battle. I just want to wrap this up with just three concluding thoughts that work through this text and just kind of flesh some things out a little bit more. I'm sorry I didn't put these up there for you. I get carried away. Number one, God is warning us. There really are only two ways to live. You're either a child of God or you're not. You're either walking with God or you're not. Let me read two passages of scripture just to kind of get the sense of of that reality. Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You see how all this is kind of just kind of coming together, it's just being tied together. You can be someone who receives the kindness of God, humbles yourself before the great and mighty king, Jesus himself, or you can harden your heart, you can dig your heels in, and you can treat that gospel, that good news with contempt. It's a choice on a human level that we have to live one way or the other. And God's warning us all. And maybe you're here today and you're not, you have not yet bowed before God and said, God, forgive me of my sin. I see how your son in love came, went to a cross and took my shame and my sin. And because of that, I have been reconciled to you and I have been made alive and I have been made free. If you haven't prayed that prayer, if you haven't come to the place where Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're still in this position of unbelief. And there's a warning here. You can remain in unbelief, but the temptation is going to be to dig yourself further in unbelief unless you allow the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel to to have its way in your heart. It's a warning. Secondly, God is counseling us. God is counseling us in this passage that he has called us to live courageously in a hostile world that despises the kindness of God. When you walk out of these doors today, you're walking into a world that despises the gospel. Ah, but America's a Christian nation. Yeah, I think we've all figured that one out, right? It's hostility. It's antagonistic. The gospel, the true gospel, will offend. People will despise it. 
people will reject it. In fact, if you are sharing the gospel regularly, I hope people do. And here's why. Because that means that you're actually sharing or teaching the biblical gospel. There's always the risk to, to soften and say, well, it's, just, it's all just about God's love. And just leave it there. But the gospel is much deeper and richer than that. And it needs to be communicated in all of its entirety. It's like if you had cancer and I just came to you and said, you know what, I just, I just heal, but I'm not going to tell you that you have cancer. I just heal. Oh, we love healing. It's great. But what is your problem? What are you suffering with? Well, I don't know, but I love healing. See, I love, I love that God loves. Well, he loves, but why does he love, and how does he love, and what's the reason behind his love, and what's the problem that his love answers? See, we, we, we need to understand that God is calling us to live courageously, and when we live courageously in this hostile world, don't be shocked if people shame you. Don't be shocked if they mock and ridicule the gospel that you hold dear or the word of God that you, you, you read and you, you, you seek to live out. A hostile world wants to remain hostile in its own selfishness and sin and will not like what you have to say and will not like what, the, what you have to say or as far as the gospel has to say unless God is at work in that heart, drawing that person to himself. So the reality is, guys, we're going to rub shoulders with people that are hostile to the gospel. Now, there might be kind of a, um, a reasonable kind of communication where people say, well, you know, you can, you can believe what you want, and I'll believe what I want, and that kind of stuff. But in their heart, it's like, I don't want any of that. We're living in a hostile world. God's called us to be courageous. And by the way, 1 Thessalonians 5, just turn there briefly, 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 15. This, is, this, I think, is really important for us just to think through. Verse 15. It says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, talking about the body, and to everyone. The kindness of God, as we've seen through David, was extended to Mephibosheth, someone who was, I would say, part of covenant Israel. But it's also extended to a pagan king. And so here we have in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, that's talking about those who are Christians, and to everyone. So we must always have this mode of kindness and grace and said love to the body and to those outside the body as well. We don't give up on it because a ruler like Hanum rejects the gospel. We say, well, we're going to continue doing it. We're going to keep on preaching the gospel. We're going to keep on being a, a light in the community. We're going to keep on standing for the things that matter to God. And we have to be courageous in doing it. The third thing is this, that God is reminding us. First of all, of what we once were, dead in our trespasses and sins, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. In our very nature, we are children of what? Wrath. That's what we were. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's table in just a minute. And part of the celebration is to remember what you once were under the wrath of God, but also to remember what you now have become through the gospel. We are alive together with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's taking you from your place of sinfulness and to be the, the object not only of his, of his wrath, but now the object of his love. And he has brought you into his family and he has raised you up in that family to sit with Jesus Christ. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Let's finish by reading Titus 3, 4 and 5. I'll just read it here. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Lord, allow us to marinate in this passage or to see the hostility that some have against your kindness. We may be one of those people. But Lord, if we are ones who have had the privilege of being drawn into the family of God by your son Jesus Christ and the, 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 the application of the cross has been placed on us. We are now new creatures created in Christ Jesus for good works. Lord, today we want to celebrate that. We want to be reminded that we're living in a hostile world, that we need to be courageous, that we need to have good theology to understand that you are in control and that you uh, sometimes allow suffering and shame to take place, but ultimately for your good for your glory and for your purposes, but Lord, give us wisdom, give us discernment to see the beauty of what it is that we have in you. We are reconciled to the creator of this universe. The wrath that was destined for us has now been placed on your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we fear the wrath that is yet to be poured out because of unbelief. And we pray, Lord, that those that we come in contact with, that we can share the gospel with, will bow the knee before you rather than suffer underneath that eternal wrath. Help us today. We ask in your precious name. Amen.